Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put to the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Lorraine Tyndale. Lorraine is an integrative psychotherapist specialising in trauma-informed symptoms that cause anxiety and depressive and disassociative disorders. Lorraine's company, Lorraine Tyndale Counselling and Psychotherapy, was set up with the intention of providing treatment to people suffering from disorders such as this. Lorraine, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. It's a real pleasure having you, Lorraine. Now, the purpose of this discussion, first and foremost, is to establish your take on leadership. So if we dive straight in and just look at that word leader on its own for a second, I'm interested to understand what that word means to you and how it resonates. Um, it means somebody who takes charge or somebody who leads somebody into a certain direction. But sometimes the leader can come from the back. You don't have to be at the front. The best leaders are the ones that are behind and allow people to find their way, but support them and be beside them all the way. But it's different when it, in politics it means something mm. totally different. I think the key thing to take away from that is the fact that leadership has many different faces, doesn't it? You don't have to be necessarily yeah. on a pedestal. You don't have to be within the public eye or taking part within politics or sports or even be a celebrity. Leaders can be people in all walks of life. And I think that those people closest to us, so for example, mentors, peers, teachers, parents, even friends, colleagues, they can sometimes be the people who have the biggest influence on our lives and are really the biggest leaders, can't they? Yes. And it's people who are doing something different, who are being courageous in the face of adversity. They are those who are paving the way for us. Exactly right. And we're seeing a great deal of that form of leadership from the front line and in the community in the context of the current climate with the emergence of COVID-19, of course. Um, I can imagine as a trauma consultant, you've seen quite a lot in the last few weeks and months. Um, how has it been for you, Lorraine, sort of adapting to meet the challenges of the uh, the pandemic as a whole? It's been eye-opening for me as a person and as a professional. It has made me change the way I work to adapt to COVID and talk to leaders within my field and people that I admire and people whose work I respect for guidance to make sure that I'm directed in the right department so I'm working in a way that's safe for people in COVID-19 and it's been eye-opening. It's been changing and I hope it will change the way we live our lives because we've been reflecting a lot and at how we got to this stage. It has been a real period of self-reflection. I think that's absolutely right. And what we have taken from this is a renewed focus on issues such as mental health and well-being. And especially in your profession, that's going to be incredibly important going forward, that that awareness stays at the forefront of our minds. Yes, it, it, mental health has been a big impact. And clients are very impacted, especially people who already had um, PTSD or people who had mental health, they suffered more because they were unable to be in touch with other people. They were unable to connect or talk to other people or be with other people, which is very important. Communication, touch, and being physically with other people is very, very important. Mm. So they've suffered a lot. 
Working with such people as well, it brings a new element of people management into leadership, doesn't it? I was actually speaking to a care provider for individuals with complex needs um, the other day, in fact, and they mentioned that they had to be really wary of even something as simple as wearing PPE because sometimes that can act as a trigger for some people as well. So these are all important challenges that people have had to really embrace on the front line in that sense, haven't they? Absolutely. I wear minimum PPE when we go out so it will be maybe the gloves but we've adapted a, a protocol where we have treatment outside now where we're walking mm. two, two meters separate so the client is still having therapy but we're taking them out in nature. The PPE is not being worn fully so that I do not seem unwelcoming to the client mm. because they need to read my facial cues they need to be able to connect with me as a person to make eye contact and Therapy is a very intimate thing, so it's about the amount and the measure of how much PPE you put into place. You have to put yourself safe, which I do and we do, but at the same time, you have to be accessible for the clients because it will trigger, as you say, loads mm. of their issues, loads of things that happened for them in the past. It's incredibly interesting that you mention, of course, the COVID-19 protocol that you brought in yourselves because there's been a great deal of debate hasn't there about the leadership of the uh, the government through the uh, the pandemic thus far particularly with regards to existing guidelines COVID secure guidelines for premises as they begin to reopen and also those that have continued to operate throughout the pandemic thus far. Um, in your case um, Lorraine have you been satisfied throughout that you've fully understood exactly what's been expected of you and you continue to do so? Well as much as we fully didn't understand, because it's very different when you're working as a therapist, so we took guidance from our leadership. We took guidance from our association because the government is, has been clear but unclear somehow. So I suppose as a therapist, we needed very clear guidelines because as a therapist, we sit in rooms with people and COVID can be transmittable in a room because from research, it can stick to surfaces and if it is not circulating, it will thrive. But when we take them outside, so what I did, I spoke to my president, Michael Connor. I have conversations with Derek Farrell, Marilyn Luba, to see how I could adapt the protocol for taking COVID outside, outside of what the government stipulates. Mm. Because I suppose the problem with the government, they told us what to do, but they didn't tell us what's the science, what's the logic behind it. Mm. And with regards to the emphasis that this pandemic has put on working practices and how that might change in the future, can you see this sort of provision being something that you persist with even as we sort of move toward the new normal? Currently, I'm doing a research. Before the pandemic, I was doing a research because I, I think my research is in military and veterans with PTSD. And I was doing the research outside. So for COVID, I've readapted it with the safety procedures to put in COVID. But from the clients who I had been seeing in the office previously, they don't want to go back in. So they prefer to be outdoors. So it's changed the way people want to work. People are healthier now because it involves walking. It's not just therapy, but we walk and we talk. And they find that it's really, really effective, more effective than being in an office, especially if you're petrified about catching COVID. Mm, Especially with the new government guidelines, actually, it was really confusing when he was, what I read yesterday about being in church, because 
that would, when you sing, it would transmit the COVID. So that's really something that clients will be petrified about and they're worried that what does that mean for them because talking and singing are similar. And considering that there is a move away from that sort of office environment during this time, what role do you think that the office is actually going to play in the future of the workplace, both for yourself as a practice, but also in the wider world? Well, I think office work has changed. People will only go to the office when they need to. And we are now being more appreciative about what we have. So I think we're less wasteful, so there'll be less driving to the office in my place, in my case anyway, because I would have to drive to the office to get there quicker. But instead, now I walk to the nearest park and meet all my clients there, and I've spent the whole day there. And I hear colleagues that they're not sure they want to go back into office work. And they're happy to do it over technology until we can be guaranteed that it's safe. It has definitely changed the way we work. I can understand exactly why there are some anxieties about returning to the uh, the workplace because there's a great deal of debate about the pace of restrictions being lifted and, of course, whether safety guidelines can certainly be adhered to. There's been a great debate about social distancing as well and the risks that come with that. Of course, we've recently um, discovered that that's going to be reduced from two metres to one metre. So there will be, of course, some reservations about that, but there'll also be others that look at that in quite a positive sense as well. Um, for the benefit of those tuning into this, we are recording on the 24th of June 2020. So it has recently been announced by Prime Minister Boris Johnson that social distancing regulations will be changed to reduce from the standard two metres to one metre in line with World Health Organisation advice and regulations currently in place in um, other countries. Um, Lorraine, as we um, sort of think about what the new normal is going to bring and the challenges that are going to come with that. Um, I'm interested to understand before we wrap things up um, what you envision for yourself over the course of the next year and what you hope to achieve in that time. Well, what I hope to achieve is uh, working with the research and taking people outdoors and actually uh, campaigning for EMDR, which is the uh, the treatment I use and the association that I belong to for treating trauma that is effective and it's very adaptable and it could be used outside and it can treat anything from depression to, you know, serious traumas like war, phobias and anxiety. And there's little need for it to be used in the areas so it can be anywhere. And I'm really looking forward to this year with loads of research and outdoors a lot. That's really encouraging to hear, Lorraine, that there are some plans and some real optimism for the future. And it is one thing actually discussing these plans, um, but then it's another thing entirely looking back and reflecting on how things have exactly panned out. So given how insightful it's been having you join us on the programme today, I think it would be fantastic, both for myself and from a listener's perspective, to actually catch up and have you back on just to see exactly how those plans do end up being borne out over the course of the next year. Oh, yes, that would be really a pleasure. And I'm excited because it started before COVID and it's just COVID happened while we were in the process of the research. And I'm excited for it. And I think it's a different way of working and people are changing. We are more considerate, more thoughtful about the impact we have on our environment. 
Certainly, um, that's something that we should keep in mind um, as well. Sustainability as well as mental health and well-being has been one of those things that's been brought up on the agenda as a result of the uh, the pandemic. And let's hope, as I say, we do keep those at the forefront of our minds. Um, Lorraine, it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme today. And um, I do appreciate your time taken to come on and join us. Um, most importantly, however, until we do speak again, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods yet, even though we are starting to see some things return to some form of normality. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. That was Lorraine Tyndale speaking, integrative psychotherapist. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State and Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's Cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August of 2015. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can. Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, 
both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms 
about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary 
often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in 
you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by 
COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. 
Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has 
uh, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. 
Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.